Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled, All That the Father Gave. Today on Words of Grace, we're going to begin a little mini-series here on the radio on passages from the Gospel of John that discuss very pointedly God's sovereignty in our salvation and the complete success of God in saving his people from their sins. That's something that, as a believer in the doctrines of grace, I rejoice in. It's something that we hold to very fervently at the church that I pastor, something that we believe very tenaciously here on words of grace, God's sovereignty and salvation. And it seems like John's gospel is one that highlights that fact for us, perhaps in a more direct and pointed way than the other gospel accounts. Not that the other gospel accounts don't include God's sovereignty and salvation, but John's gospel gives us information that the synoptic gospels doesn't give us. It records some sermons and some teachings of Jesus that we don't find in the other gospels, and in doing so, we actually learn a lot of different doctrinal things. In this series, we're not going to look at these passages in any sort of chronological order. Today, we'll be in John chapter 6. Next week, we might be in John chapter 10. We might skip around a little bit and look at these different passages from John, not necessarily in the order in which they occur in Scripture. But over the coming weeks, as we do this together, I think that we'll see very clearly that a specific and certain message presents itself on the pages of God's Word in the Gospel of John regarding our salvation and God's sovereignty in it. In our broadcast today, we want to consider a very famous portion of Scripture in the book of John, chapter 6, at least famous among our denomination of churches, our fellowship of churches, a passage that begins in verse 37 and continues through verse 45. That's about as far into this chapter that we're going to get, John six forty-five. In this Scripture, Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, the Jews begin to murmur at this, and so Jesus begins speaking again in verse 43. Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. These are what some people might refer to as some of the hard statements, the hard sayings of Jesus in the Word of God. That's certainly very pointed language. On one hand, we learn that all that the Father gave him shall come to him, and that this coming to him is equated with being taught of God to know God, as you see later in what Jesus says. But we also read that no man can come to Christ except the Father which has sent him draw that person, and then he will raise that person up again at the last day. These are hard sayings. When Jesus 
said these things. Many of his disciples, people that had followed him, did not walk with him anymore. He turns and he looks at his apostles and he said, will you also go away? And Peter says that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? To whom else can we go? And I think that somebody that knows the Lord Jesus and loves the Lord, someone that's had experiences with Jesus in this life like the apostles had, well, that's the reply of a person like that. Where else do I have to go, Lord, but to you? There's nowhere else that I can go. I yearn for Christ. I desire to be with Christ. I want to be more like Christ. And so there's nowhere else that I can go in this world to find what I have gotten from the Lord Jesus Christ, both in terms of my salvation, but also the fellowship with him throughout my life. There's simply nowhere else that I can go. Now, as we begin to introduce this passage, and we'll back up and give you some of what happened leading up to Jesus making this statement, because the story of that is very interesting. I'll say that every single person and every single order of faith, every single denomination has a passage or a set of passages that they go to as the foundation for their core beliefs. Now, sometimes a passage is taken out of context to formulate a core belief. That's why there are so many different denominations in the world. And this is an unpopular thing in our relativistic society today. But though we can all be wrong, we can't all be right if we hold to differing opinions on core doctrines in the Word of God. And we know that none of us have everything correct. None of us have everything figured out. There's only been one human being in the history of the world who has been perfectly accurate in everything that he believed and everything that he said, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us have this figured out. None of us are perfect in what we believe, and we should all approach Scripture with a lot of humility and a lot of begging and pleading to God that we would be accurate in what we believe. But suffice it to say, though we can all be wrong, we can all be right, and if so many Christians disagree on so many things, well, it just paints the picture very clearly that there are a lot of misunderstandings about God's Word and what God's Word teaches. Now, as a side point, I'm very thankful to know that despite errors that we might have in our thinking or our theology, the Lord knows them that are His. Paul made that statement to Timothy in Second Timothy in a context that dealt with false teaching. So even if we fall victim to false teaching, the Lord knows them that are His. If you're a person that is saved by the grace of God, as we talked about on the broadcast last week, well, nothing can happen to take you from your Savior, including things that you believe that might not be biblically accurate. Again, none of us have this all hammered out perfectly. We all need God's grace and God's help to understand the Word of God. We all have a set of passages, though, that we go to to prove what we believe. These are some statements of the Lord that I go back to. There are times that I question my belief on purpose. Is what I believe biblically true? Am I proclaiming the Word of God, or am I teaching a tradition of men? And when I begin to have worries, maybe my theology is wrong. Maybe I shouldn't believe in the doctrines of grace. Maybe a person is saved through some other means than God's grace. I go back to these scriptures, and I read them, and I read them, and I read them. It's so very clear. All that the Father gave to the Son shall come to him, and those that come to him he will in no wise cast out. No man can come to Christ except he be drawn of the Father, and this coming to God this coming to Christ is equated with being taught of God to know Him as 
is written in the prophets in the book of Isaiah. Here in verse 45 of John 6, he quotes Isaiah, and the book of Hebrews chapter 8 covers this point as well. So these are foundational bedrock passages for me. These are passages I go to to frame my mind and the way that I understand not only the rest of the Word of God, but the world around me as well. Turning to the text to study the context of what occurred prior to Jesus making this statement, in the book of John chapter 6, believe it or not, the backstory of this chapter is food. And I'll just briefly point out that you and I take for granted so often the fact that we are blessed with good nutrition in today's time. It hasn't always been the case, and it isn't that way for many people in the world today. While our country is very blessed with food, poverty and hunger is something that occurs here in our country. And as the body of Christ, we should be very diligent in relieving the afflictions of the poor. But at the same time, around the world, there are entire countries that are just in the depth of poverty, and because of that, they lack the nutrition that we have. If any of you have ever known Christians from other countries, maybe you've gone overseas to visit with churches and people in other nations, or perhaps you've met Christians from other countries as they come over here to visit your church, well, one thing that they'll talk about, especially if they're from less fortunate countries, is how they might eat one meal a day. And the water that they have to drink is not clean. It's often polluted. It isn't chlorinated. It's not boiled. They simply drink the water that they get out of a river, and that water might have waste dumped in it upstream. It's a very sad situation. So much of the time in other countries, what we might call third world countries, but less fortunate nations than our nation, they simply don't have the means that we do. In John chapter 6, what actually takes place? Well, you have a group of people who didn't have food that are following Jesus around because Jesus fed them, and it was the only way they could get a meal. Now, is that the reason that we're to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? No, we're to follow Jesus because it's simply right to do, number one. But we also follow him because he's our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our Creator. God not only deserves, but also demands that his creatures worship him. And all of the problems that societies have experienced from the very beginning of time until now have been because people cease to worship him. Societies refuse to worship him. Societies reject his identity. They reject the fact that he created them. They reject his word. And they turn and worship idols instead. Worshiping idols, they begin to quickly digress into all sorts of immorality and then sexual immorality and well, you could just read all of that from Romans chapter 1 or in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. I worship God because it's just right. I worship God because he demands it. I worship God because he has saved me. And I worship God because he has been so good to me. I don't worship him because I'm expecting him to give me something. I worship him because of what he's already done for me. And that's a crucial distinction. These people are following Jesus, not because they love him, not because they believe in him, not because they've even seen the miracles that he did, but they follow him because they're hungry and they want him to feed them. The first three verses of this chapter, John chapter 6, talk about the fact that great multitudes followed him because they saw the miracles that he did. In the next paragraph, beginning in verse 5 and continuing through verse 14, Jesus looks out at the thousands of people there, some 5,000, and 
he asks Philip the question, how is it that we're going to feed these people? And Philip says, look, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient to feed these people, and every one of them just get a little bit. How are we going to feed them? There's no way we can afford to feed them. And Andrew, another disciple who is Peter's brother, brings a little boy over to him and says, this young child has a couple of fish and five loaves of barley, but what is it among so many people? And Jesus tells these apostles to organize this congregation, organize all these people, have them sit down, and Jesus prays to God and give thanks. He takes the loaves, he distributes them to the disciples, they go around and they divide these loaves and fishes to the extent that they feed not only the 5,000, but they have stuff left over after. And so these people basically eat as much as they can. They are absolutely full. And I really think that this is a great example of what a gospel sermon is to be. We don't really start with a whole lot. There's not a whole lot here in and of ourselves, but God multiplies it. He causes it to grow and be utilized far beyond the natural ability of the person speaking it and the thoughts of the person. And then an entire group of people gets to be fed by the Word of God because Jesus divides the loaves and the fishes. He divides what we go and try to share with his people in our respective congregations. It feeds their souls, and they are satisfied with what they hear, if they're there for the right reason, and the Lord blesses. After Jesus feeds the 5,000 with just a couple of loaves and fishes, he departs and he sends his disciples away to cross the Sea of Galilee in a boat. Well, this is actually the story of Jesus walking on water. There's a storm that blows in. The wind tosses the boat to and fro. The disciples are afraid. Jesus walks to them on water, calms the storm, and they make it to the other side. The next day, people see that Jesus was gone. Now, the last thing that happened before Jesus left that night was they came and they tried to take him by force and make him a king. And that's why he went into a mountain alone, and he sent the disciples away. Now, I would just point out that these people are trying to make Jesus a king, not because they believe in him as the Christ of Scripture. They believe in him as a political Messiah. And there was a great difference in Jesus as a political Messiah and Jesus as the Savior of his people. These folks here are happy to receive him as a political Messiah, but they have very little interest in him as the true Christ of Scripture. And might I just point out that we need to be careful to worship Christ according to what the Bible says about him and not by what we would like him to be or how we would redefine him. We don't want to make up a Christ and then worship that Christ instead of believing in and worshiping the Christ of Scripture. They want to take him and make him a king. That's not why Jesus came to this world. He's already a king. He came not to rule over Israel. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom in the world. He did that. He ascended up to glory, and one day he will come back and deliver up his kingdom to his father. These people realize that Jesus is gone the next day. They begin looking for him, and as they find him, Jesus tells them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is verse 26, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Now, this lesson, this language that Jesus speaks here, what he says is 
a very practical thing. You and I, as people who know him, and there were obviously people in this congregation here in Acts 6 that didn't know him. They were only following him because he was going to feed them. They didn't care about him. They didn't love him. They didn't worship him. And the words that he said in response to that speaks to that condition. But his lesson here is one that's very practical. We enjoy, through following Christ, things that will continue into the next life. Now, remember last week's message. We're not saved by the things that we do. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by the grace of God. But we should labor for the meat which endures unto the next life. That is to say, you and I are to pursue with all diligence Christ and his gospel through the Holy Spirit, and we feast on a type of spiritual meal, spiritual nourishment, the bread of life, as it were, partaking of Christ, the bread of life, through the hearing of the gospel. As often as we hear that, and as often as we worship, as often as we fellowship with him in this world, we partake of food, spiritual food, that endures even until the next world. In other words, it doesn't pass away with this world. And that's very interesting because everything else in this world is going to pass away. The physical creation is going to be destroyed. At death, our earthly ties with our family are dissolved in the resurrection. We're neither married nor given in marriage, but we are as the angels of heaven. When we are raised in the resurrection, when we are glorified, and Christ destroys this world, burns the universe with fire, with a fervent heat, and all of this passes away, the only things that we participated in here that will continue there are spiritual things. And so while we live here, we can ingest, we can enjoy, we can be nourished by the food that's going to endure until this next life. And that's the primary focus of that particular statement. Now, how do we labor in this? How do we participate in this? How do we pursue these spiritual things? Well, they ask him. He says, labor for the meat which endures unto everlasting life. And they say, what do we do? That we work the works of God. What do we do to labor in such a way? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Now, some people interpret that as saying God works a work on you, and that's why you believe. And that is most certainly true. We, by him, do believe in God. And I can show you passages from Acts. I can show you passages from Peter's writings. I can show you passages from Paul's writings that make that very statement. Jesus would say over and over, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. He would talk about the fact that his sheep hear his voice. They know him. They follow him. And he would talk about the fact that those who are of their father the devil cannot hear his words. Even though they heard them audibly, they couldn't hear them and perceive them spiritually. But Jesus' words here on working the works of God follows his exhortation to labor for a type of food that doesn't perish. And so what he's doing is actually answering their question that they had because of the statement that he made about laboring for this meat that endures even unto the next world. That is to say, labor to enjoy and ingest spiritual things. How then do we labor to ingest this food to enjoy spiritual things. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he hath sent. So what sort of laborings do we do to partake of this food that lasts until the next life? Well, we simply believe on Christ or 
as you could say, we labor in our belief. The just shall live by faith, and much of our life is a struggle between believing the promises of God as they apply to us and unbelief. We're given a cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're told to look at that cloud of witnesses and above all look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, to cast off every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, which is the sin of unbelief. We cast that off as we look to Jesus and the cloud of witnesses of people who have lived and accomplished things by faith. Our life is a labor in faith. And so as we labor in faith, as we wrestle in faith, as we pursue Christ and we wrestle against unbelief, we partake of through the believing in Christ, and I would add, hearing the Word and ingesting the Word and praying to God, we partake of a type of food that, he says, lasts until the next world. That is to say, we partake of spiritual things, things that are eternal. I'm thankful when I hear the gospel of Christ preached because I'm learning and experiencing things that are from a source other than this world. Remember that believing the word, we receive the earnest or a down payment, a little foretaste in advance of what glory is like. If you've ever heard the word and you experienced a peace that passeth all understanding, the joy of your salvation. Well, you know what I'm talking about when I say an earnest of your inheritance. You are participating in, you're partaking of something that comes from the world after this world is destroyed. You are participating in the bread of life as it were. You are ingesting, in a spiritual sense, the Lord. As the old hymn says, Break thou the bread of life, Lord, unto me. Now, when Jesus says this, these people say, well, fine. If you want us to believe on you, do a miracle. You know what Moses did as a miracle? Well, he gave us manna. And so Jesus says, you're not following me because you believe. You're not following me because you saw miracles. You're following me because you want a free meal. And then they tell Jesus, well, we'll believe on you if you do a miracle, do a miracle and give us a free meal. They totally miss the point that Jesus is making here. He says in verse 36, I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. And here we find the statement that Jesus made. It's interesting that this statement is born out of controversy. Jesus says, you've seen me, you believe not, you're just after a free meal. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Now, regarding those statements, let's consider a few points. First of all, all, all that the Father gave the Son shall come to him. The notion of the Father giving people to the Son for him to save is something that John often emphasizes in John chapter 10 and John chapter 17. And Paul would explain this in a very clear, systematic way in Ephesians chapter 1. We read this passage last week on the broadcast as we talked about salvation by grace. God the Father, before the creation of the world, chose people and gave them to his Son to save. And so all that the Father giveth me, that all there has reference to those that were given to the Son by the Father before the foundation of the world. God the Father promised this before the world began, according to the book of Titus chapter 1. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me 
I will in no wise cast out. Not only will every single person that the Father gave to the Son come to know the Son in their life. They will be quickened. They will be born again. They will know Him. They will pass from death and sin to life in Christ. They will be made a new creature in Christ Jesus. Not only will every person that the Father gave to the Son come to Him, they will also never be cast out. This teaches the preservation of the saints, that every person that knows Christ will be saved in the end. There is no risk of a person who knows the Lord Jesus Christ being severed from him for eternity, because they will in no wise be cast out. Now, Jesus says in verse 38, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. As we think about the fact that they will in no wise be cast out, let's also emphasize from verse 39 that he will lose absolutely nothing. The entire family of God, all of his people, as Matthew one twenty one says, would be saved from their sins through the death of Christ, and he would lose nothing. Jesus is a completely successful Savior. Now let's emphasize that word lose for a moment. If Jesus didn't save someone he tried to save, then he would lose something. Does the thought of God losing turn your stomach? I hope it does. I hope it disgusts you, because it should. Jesus will lose nothing. Jesus cannot lose. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he set judgment in the earth. And the isle shall wait for his law, as Isaiah 42 says. Jesus will not lose. And so all those that the Father gave him will be with him without the loss of one. He will raise them up again at the last day. Now, all that the Father gave to the Son shall come to him. Does that mean that they will all go to church? To be very clear, they won't all even make it out of the womb. Why do you think abortion is so desired by evil people in our country today? Because they want to kill God's people before they're ever born into the world. They won't all even make it out of the womb, but they'll all come to know Christ. Just like John the Baptist leapt for joy in his mother's womb, God can reach his people in the womb, and God does reach his people in the womb. They will come to him, they will know him, they will be drawn into a vital relationship with him without the loss of a single one. And so perhaps the last thing that we should emphasize on the broadcast today, all that the Father gave the Son shall come to him, none that are drawn to him shall be cast away from him, but they'll all be with him in glory without the loss of a single one because he will lose nothing. How is it that you and I know that we are people who were given to the Son by the Father? How do we know that this applies to me? Well, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Look at verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. The life and immortality that God has given his children is brought to light through the preaching of the gospel. And this is the will of him that sent me in verse 40, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Through believing in Christ, we have the assurance of our salvation. Quite simply put, we know that we belong to him when we love him and we believe in him because that love we have for him is because he first loved us. The belief that we have in him is begotten of God. Whosoever believeth is born of God 
and knoweth God. The wind bloweth where it listeth, thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. We believe because we have been begotten of God, and that's how we know that we are a part of this great number of people that the Father gave to the Son to save, and that the Son would save from their sins without the loss of one. Search the Scriptures to see if these things be so. Consider what I say. The Lord give thee understanding. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received the broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. To contact us, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741 or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.